Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. In this episode number 37, the second part of transfusions, anticoagulants, and bleeding, we have again Dr. Walter Himmel, Dr. Katerina Pavensky, and Dr. Jeannie Callum. Dr. Himmel is an emergency physician at North York General, Scarborough General, and Toronto East General Hospitals. He's a world-renowned speaker in emergency medicine on topics of stroke, anticoagulants, transfusions, and drug interactions, and the recipient of multiple teaching awards. Dr. Katerina Pavensky is the head of transfusion medicine and a medical director of the Blood Conservation and Therapeutic Apheresis Services at St. Michael's Hospital in Toronto. She's an assistant professor in the Department of Pathobiology and Laboratory Medicine. She's the chair of the St. Michael's Hospital Transfusion Committee and is on the board of directors of the Canadian Society of Transfusion Medicine. Dr. Jeannie Callum is the director of transfusion medicine and tissue banks at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre in Toronto an associate professor of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathobiology at the University of Toronto. She serves as a sponsor lead for the Ontario Regional Blood Coordinating Network for Central Ontario as an active researcher in transfusion medicine. We're going to lead off with the pros and cons of the newer anticoagulants. So let's get into talking about these newer anticoagulant alternatives to warfarin. These are Dibigatran, the trade name is Pradax, Rivaroxaban, trade name is Zarelto, and Apixaban, and the trade name is Eliquis. Did I say that right? Eloquently. (laughs) So some docs are changing all their patients over from warfarin to one of these new anticoagulants, claiming that they work just as well or even better in preventing stroke or preventing thromboembolic disease and have the same or even fewer side effects, and they don't need to bother with the dreaded INR testing. Most ED docs, on the other hand, are terrified of the newer anticoagulants because we see the patients when they have their bleeding complications and we have little to guide us on how to manage them. There's other docs who believe that all these studies on the newer anticoagulants have been supported by big pharma and so these studies might be biased and prefer to go with the time-tested warfarin. Dr. Pavensky, in general, how do the newer anticoagulants compare in terms of pharmacokinetics, contraindications, lab monitoring, etc., before we get into how they compare with bleeding risk and prevention of thromboembolic disease? Yeah, so newer anticoagulants boast a number of advantages over warfarin. Warfarin is cheap. These ones are not. However, there are a whole bunch of advantages, and the advantages would be they're oral, They generally do not require any monitoring for day-to-day administration. The onset of action is quite fast. For some of them, it's in a matter of hours versus a couple of days for warfarin. We believe that they are one-size-fits-all, so it's regardless of the patient's size. It's a standard dose, generally, for all kinds of patients. There is also uh, minimal drug interactions or dietary interactions, definitely way way less interactions with diet, uh, less interactions with medications compared to warfarin. So there is a number of advantages. Fast, oral, standard dose for patients, and minimal interactions with diet or drugs. There are also disadvantages. The disadvantages may be once you develop a bleeding complication, there is no antidote. Whereas warfarin has a number of antidotes, uh, vitamin K, the non-emergency bleeding, 
or prothrombin complex concentrate or plasma if PCC is contraindicated in case of an emergency. Unfortunately, none of the newer oral anticoagulants have a proven antidote. So that's a distinct disadvantage. Some might argue that it is actually a disadvantage that they're not monitored because there is no way for the physician to monitor compliance. And that's something that is not frequently talked about. My other concern with oral anticoagulants would be that you don't need to monitor them, but in the emergency circumstances, you would want to know how much anticoagulant is on board, and that may be very difficult using the standard tests that we're used to performing or the tests that are widely available in all emergency departments. So, for example, for Coumadin, it's fairly warfarin, it's fairly easy because we all know that INR will be elevated, INR is available in most places. For 10A inhibitors, such as rivaroxaban and apixaban, there is some evidence that an elevated INR may be of help to show that there is drug on board. And for dabigatran, you may want to look at APTT. However, for warfarin, there's a proven correlation between the amount of warfarin in blood and the amount of anticoagulation as evidenced by elevation INR. That is absolutely not true about 10A inhibitors and 2A inhibitors, where there, even though the test may be abnormal, it doesn't give you the same idea of how much anticoagulation is actually on board. Dr. Himmel is now going to comment on compliance when it comes to the newer anticoagulants versus warfarin. Well, this is important to merge because we often see patients with AFib and we want to cardiovert them. Well, if they're on warfarin, we check their INR, and it's more than two, we feel reasonably comfortable cardioverting them. But if they're on the bigotran or ivoroxaban, we have to say, are you taking your, the bigotran or ivoroxaban? Because they've skipped one or two doses, they haven't got renal failure, they're no longer anticoagulated, and you shouldn't be cardioverting them. They go back to the unanticoagulated patient. So you've got to be aware the half-life is short. We're talking 12 hours sort of thing. If they've skipped two or three doses, they are now basically no longer anticoagulated and treat them as such. So that's point two to really be super aware of if they're not compliant. Now, I've been getting INRs and PTs in these patients because I've, well, my understanding is, as you've described, Dr. Vansky, that, that people on the bigger trend, if they're therapeutic, the activated parthromoplastatine tends to be elevated. The rivaroxaban, the INR, tends to be elevated. In my experience is, yep, that tends to happen. And the reason I been checking these tests is that basically you can get the sense if your INR is absolutely normal and the PTT is absolutely normal, these patients are not compliant. And if you're going to cardiovert them, forget it. They're no longer anticoagulated. So those are some of the big differences. In the studies, and you've got compliant patients, you're not going to monitor them. They haven't got kidney... I mean, these patients were looked after beautifully in all these studies, right? The RELY trial, the Aristotle trial, the Averroes trial, the ROCKET trials monitored carefully, compliant, and followed, encouraged. Don't hear monitoring. And I don't think monitoring is going to tell you very much. I'm saying in the emergency departments, you see weird patients in weird situations at weird times and have weird questions that they wouldn't have in an office. Our question is, do I cardiovert this person electrically? What do I do about their bleeding and so forth? I'm just suggesting if you check the INR and PT in those weird situations, it's totally normal, you've learned something. They're probably not compliant. 
The other big thing with newer anticoagulants is that they really have not been extensively studied in patients with renal failure. And yet, that does not stop physicians to routinely prescribe them to people who have renal impairment. The reason why it is not a good practice is that the half-life of these drugs is dramatically prolonged in patients with abnormal kidney function. A very small change in their health status, food poisoning that caused some vomiting and reduced fluid intake results in a very significant jump in their creatinine, and all of a sudden their half-life is tripled. And that is a concern. So the next thing you know, they start with a gastro and end up with an intracranial bleed. And that is a very significant concern. If your creatinine clearance is under 30, the bigot trend is contraindicated. In Canada, if your creatinine clearance is under 30, rivaroxaban is contraindicated. And in Canada, if your creatinine clearance is under 15, apixaban is contraindicated. We see tons of patients whose clearance is under 30. And we see tons of patients who, if they take extra dose of Altase or don't drink water for two days, their creatinine clearance is under 30. And the vast majority of patients I've seen who have major bleeding problems, your gum bleeding, your subconscious hemorrhage from these new drugs, they've got real insufficiency. And sometimes we have to remember, you can have a creatinine of 130 or 140, which isn't that high, and they have real insufficiency. So we should keep that in mind. There is um, also concerns about elderly patients, because even though elderly patients are routinely placed on these drugs, I would argue that we don't know as well how elderly patients do on these drugs. So there are definitely advantages, there are definitely disadvantages, and you have to be aware of all of them before prescribing these medications to patients. Let's do a review here of the pros and cons of the newer anticoagulants versus warfarin. And remember that when you start someone on warfarin, you need to start them on low molecular weight heparin as well, because it takes a few days for the warfarin to become therapeutic. First, the pros of the newer anticoagulants. One is that they're oral, compared to low molecular weight heparin, which is sub-Q. Two is that they don't require monitoring. Three is that their onset is faster than with warfarin. Four, their weight of the patient doesn't matter, so you don't have to adjust the weight for the dose like you would in low molecular weight heparin. Five, there's less interactions with medications and diet like there are with warfarin. For example, if you start a patient on an antibiotic who's taking warfarin, likely their INR will go up, and they may have a bleeding complication. In terms of the cons of the newer anticoagulants, first, they're more expensive than warfarin and low molecular weight heparin. There's no antidote as of yet, although there might be one in the near future. You can't monitor compliance accurately in patients taking one of the newer anticoagulants. However, as was discussed with rivaroxaban, usually the INR is increased, and so if a patient has a normal INR, they're probably not compliant with their rivaroxaban. And when it comes to dabigatran, it usually increases the PTT. So if you're wondering whether a patient is compliant with their dabigatran, if you do a PTT and it's normal, they're probably not compliant. Other cons with the newer anticoagulants are that they're contraindicated in patients with renal failure. And this is something you need to be really careful about because a patient who suddenly goes into acute renal failure who's on one of these newer anticoagulants can end up with a major bleed. And lastly... We don't really know the outcomes for these newer anticoagulants in the elderly population. 
Of course, we can't complete a discussion of the pros and cons of the newer anticoagulants versus low molecular weight heparin plus warfarin without talking specifically about the risks of bleeding when it comes to these patients. Intracranial bleeding, GI bleeding, and clinically significant minor bleeding. And that's what we're going to talk about next. Next, Dr. Himmel is going to talk about the bleeding risk when it comes to the newer anticoagulants compared to warfarin. When you look at dabigatran and rivaroxaban compared to warfarin, the overall bleeding complication risk is approximately the same. If you dig a bit deeper though, dabigatran and rivaroxaban have an increased risk of GI bleeding, but probably less risk of intracranial bleeding. So that's dabigatran and rivaroxaban compared to warfarin. Overall, about the same amount of bleeding complications with slightly more GI bleeding and slightly less intracranial bleeding. Well, what about apixaban? Apixaban may actually have less major bleeding as well as clinically significant non-major bleeding compared to warfarin. There was a study just published in the New England Journal of Medicine in August of 2013 called Oral Apixaban for the Treatment of Acute Venous Thromboembolism, where they showed this. Now remember that this was funded by the pharmaceutical company that makes apixaban, so you need to take the results with a grain of salt. Nonetheless, there are several experts who predict that apixaban will be the newer anticoagulant of choice because it may have less bleeding complications and works just as well as warfarin for several indications, which we'll talk about soon. So that being said, Dr. Himmel's going to give us his take on the bleeding complications of the newer anticoagulants. My take on bleeding, Pixaban's exception, with rivaroxaban and bigotran, is total bleeding is very similar with warfarin. And the neurologists and the cardiologists argue, but the big advantage of the new drugs are not just convenience, but the brain bleeding is way less. And there's no doubt that in terms of the bigotran, and certainly a pixabat, intracranial hemorrhage was significantly reduced compared to warfarin. So we've got two kinds of doctors, right? There's the ones who hate clots and the ones who hate bleeding. They have a very different view of the world. So emerge doctors tend to hate bleeding, so we have a very different view, and the office doctors tend to hate clots. So we're, we're seeing different parts of that elephant, and that's, that's not going to change. I, I think we all have to become very familiar with these new drugs. I think the emerge doctor has to remember that GI bleeding is a problem, GI distress is a problem with the bigotran, but be very sensitive to renal function. And a patient in whom the bigotran was indicated six months ago may no longer have the big indicated today. Another big thing I want to highlight, which is very specific to the bigotran, is that the bigotran is a prodrug, and it's converted into an active drug into your GI tract, and therefore the risk of GI bleeding specifically is increased in this patient population. And I would say the clinical trials support that there's probably increased risk of bleeding with the rivaroxaban as well. You have this increase in mm. your GI bleeding, with the exception of apixaban studies, don't seem to show this increased risk of GI bleeding compared to warfarin. So again, the overall risk of bleeding with rivaroxaban and dabigatran is about the same as warfarin. However, there's a lower risk of intracranial bleeding with the dabigatran and rivaroxaban compared to warfarin, and a higher risk of GI bleeding with dabigatran and rivaroxaban compared to warfarin. And apixaban overall has less risk 
of major bleeding and clinically significant non-major bleeding compared to warfarin. And what do you think about the argument that patients who are on warfarin, whose INR is generally stable and they're not yo-yoing up and down and, you know, that their INR is generally around two to three where it should be for AFib, let's say. What do you think about the argument that those patients should stay on warfarin and only the patients who are yo-yoing up and down are having really a hard trouble with their INR, those patients should be considered for the newer anticoagulants? Well, most doctors always argue if you're doing fine in what you're taking, don't change. And I think most physicians practice do tend to agree with that. I actually spoke to a few guys from Hamilton, and Hamilton was a big center that, did, that, that looked at the research and the bigotry, and the neurologists have a very different viewpoint. What they argue is this. Once you get a brain bleed, reversal or not, you're screwed. So the best way of pre- treating a brain bleed is don't get it in the first place. So the manufacturers of the bigotry argue the following. They have a very, very good point. Warfarin Instance intracranial hemorrhage can vary from anywhere from 0.3% a year up to 1.5% a year. You get a lot of brain bleeds depending on the patient. You want a nice number to start with? 1% a year when you're 80 years of age, intracranial hemorrhage. The bigger trend brain bleeds, two-thirds less. So if you want a good argument for the bigger trend, I'll give it to you. The two-thirds of the patient we have no reversal agent for didn't get a brain bleed in the first place. That's your best argument for the bigger trend. So that drug's not going to go away too soon. From an emerge viewpoint, watch the renal function. Although in the future, I think the Pixaban was the only agent which clearly demonstrated reduced bleeding compared to warfarin. In fact, in one study called the Averroes trial, it had no more bleeding than aspirin, which stunned me. So we'll see what happens. That may change as the drug gets used more and more. So we've talked a little bit about bleeding risk, intracranial hemorrhage with these newer anticoagulants. And usually it's in relation to the patient coming in with AFib and we're trying to reduce their stroke risk and balance that with the bleeding risk. Uh, What about the patients with DVT and PE? Should we be using the newer anticoagulants instead of low molecular weight heparin plus warfarin when we diagnose people in the ED with a DVT or a PE? Okay, so in this situation, we have lots of evidence that tell us that these new oral anticoagulants are very effective in preventing recurrent DVT-PE in this setting. And we have large multicenter trials for every drug, most of them published in the New England Journal of Medicine, showing the equivalence in terms of prevention of recurrent DVT-PE for all of these drugs as compared to the standard of care, which is warfarin. And it's usually low molecular weight heparin, switch over to warfarin for three to six months. Just from a a practical point of view, when you're faced with a patient in front of you and you have to decide, okay, what's best for this particular patient? These are some of the factors that I would look at to, to say, okay, this is a patient I need to put on one of the new drugs compared to sticking with the tried and true low molecular weight heparin followed by switch over to warfarin. So patients that have renal failure really is a contraindication to using these new drugs. The 10A inhibitors, uh, apixaban and rivaroxaban, um, are partially liver cleared. So a patient that has quite significant liver impairment, I would be concerned about using these new drugs as well. I'd be worried in patients that you're 
concerned about them being prone to dehydration. So someone that's elderly that might, you know, could possibly get easily dehydrated uh, and have their dibigatrandrose half-life dramatically increased, I'd be worried about putting them on the new drugs. They're contraindicated in pregnancy. So if the patient is a young woman and is considering pregnancy, you definitely don't want to put them on this drug. But on the other side, this is a very convenient way as soon as you start taking these drugs, they're almost immediately uh, therapeutic. You don't need to monitor them. It's easy to start on a Friday night because when you're not going to be able to check an INR until the Monday. So if you're faced with a reliable patient who has no hepatic renal dysfunction, they're not prone to falls, they don't plan to get pregnant, these drugs are a great new addition to the therapeutic strategy for the emergency physician. There's one situation where we don't ever consider these drugs as an anticoagulant. That would be a patient with a mechanical mitral valve. That patient, the only drug of choice is warfarin. They've not been shown to be effective in that particular situation. From a practical point of view, the way that these drugs are started, it's almost like a big dose to start for a week to three weeks, depending on the, the different drug. There's a different recipe for each one. And then a step down to a, a maintenance dose that you're going to take for three to six months. And then after the three to six months mark, a further dose reduction um, to try to minimize the chance of recurrence in that first year. And so you would have to read up on all these individual drugs, find a, you know a dosing regimen that works for you, and stick to it. Okay, so in terms of the emergency department, we're usually not too concerned with the step down. We just need to know the dosages that we need to give the patient now and then make sure that they get their follow-up in a couple of days. Could you just run through for us what the basic dosing for a DVT is for the newer anticoagulants, the starting doses? Yeah. So rivaroxaban is the most commonly used drug because it's received approval for use in Canada. And so the dosage you start is on is 15 milligrams twice daily for the first three weeks. In contrast, apixaban, um, you start at 10 milligrams uh, BID for the first seven days. So again, the dosages for DBT for dibigatran are 15 milligrams POBID for three weeks, and then there's a step down. And for apixaban, it's 10 milligrams POBID for one week, and then the step down. And remember that compliance is crucial with these patients, so you need to emphasize that they take their medication religiously because the half-life is very short with these medications, and they will become quickly unanticoagulated if they stop their medications and put themselves at high risk for thromboembolism. If you want to do right, hold you got to be a do right, hold Dr. Himmel, we've talked about reversal of warfarin when it comes to patients who are not bleeding and in patients who have minor bleeds. I'd like to get on to talking about the big bad stuff. So let's talk about life-threatening emergencies with warfarin. In Canada, how should we manage patients with major bleeding, like an intracranial hemorrhage, for example, if they're on warfarin? And in particular, how do the prothrombin complex concentrates compare to plasma when it comes to reversal of INR and patient-oriented outcomes? If the patient has a life-threatening bleed or a life-changing bleed, your priorities change completely. You basically want to stop the bleeding, 
and you're, you have to accept the risk of thrombosis, which in a two or three day period is surprisingly low. And even with patients with mechanical aortic valves or even mechanical mitral valves, if you have a life-threatening bleed and you have to reverse it, you have to accept the risk of thrombosis, which is a lot less than some people would fear. It does exist nonetheless, and must be discussed with the patient. So what do you do? Well, let's, let's talk about the easy stuff. Let's talk about vitamin K, first of all. You have to get vitamin K, because once vitamin K has reversed the INR, the INR remains reversed. So the dose, generally speaking, is 5 to 10 milligrams. The only way of giving it really is intravenously. Here, Dr. Himmel's inferring that the only way to give it in the situation of a life-threatening bleed is intravenously. Of course, we talked in the last episode about how to give it PO in patients who do not have life-threatening bleeds. Now, the risk of anaphylaxis with IV vitamin K is probably no more at risk of anaphylaxis from ceftriaxone. And that was published in an allergy journal probably about 10 years ago, and the risk that I read at that time was 3 per 10,000. Now, you can get anaphylactoid reactions in vitamin K if you give it too quickly. So the current recommendation is give 10 milligrams of vitamin K, some say 5, but I think if you're going to reverse it, reverse it and accept the consequences. Give 10 milligrams. You can put the vitamin K in some saline, for example, 50 cc's, and give it at a rate not more than a milligram per minute, and probably even slower. So 10 milligrams of vitamin K and 50 cc's normal saline over half an hour would be a reasonable thing to do. If the patient gets anaphylactoid, very unlikely at that rate, or if they accidentally got a big bolus because the IV was wide open, stop for a while and then start again. That's step number one. Now, how long does intravenous vitamin K take to really work? Well, my understanding is you're going to start to see some benefit probably at two or three hours, and at 24 hours, if you give them a reasonable dose, the INR will be reversed, and your coagulation factors will be producing adequate numbers. Certainly, INR is going to be 1.5 or less. So that's the vitamin K issue. But we know from studies of intracranial hemorrhage, when you get an intracranial hemorrhage, most of the bleeding occurs up front. And most of the expansion occurs in the first three, four, or five hours. So vitamin K is clearly too low. So how do you get the patients to get their levels of factors 2, 7, 9, and 10 to where you want it to be? Well, you've got two options. Traditionally, you've got plasma. and you've got prothrombin complex concentrates. Does plasma work? Well, sure, plasma works, but you've got to give a lot of plasma. You're talking about at least four units, possibly six, even to get the INR 1.5. Most plasma in most hospitals has to be defrosted and delivered. You're talking volumes of a liter to a liter and a half. Plus, you've got the risks of virus infections, and you've got the risks of trawling and so forth. So it's not the ideal treatment any longer. So if you're at a place where you haven't got octoplex and you haven't got bariplex and the patient has life-threatening bleed and you're going to give plasma, you've got no choice then, but you're going to get between four and six units at least. And that's going to be given as quickly as possible. And sometimes that's not very quickly. That could take an hour, hour and a half. Now, prothrombin compass concentrates factors 2, 7, 9, 10 has been around for at least several years in Canada and Europe much longer. Now, what's the advantages? Well, it's lyophilized, it's a powder. The, the company provides you with the solvent to mix it in. It can be delivered to the emergency department in five or six minutes and mixed up by a skilled nurse in about two or three or four minutes and given to the patient rapidly. Now, it's true, at least uh, the company says Octopus should be given at a rate of about three cc's per minute. 
and very perplexed. I think about eight cc's per minute. Well, I'll be quite frank. I'm almost embarrassed to say it. I've given it more quickly in patients where I want to get a quick reversal. I've never really seen a problem, and nor does it make sense to me I'm going to get an anaphylactic problem. But certainly, the drug works quickly, it's very safe, and it reverses the INR almost immediately, which makes perfect sense. You're giving someone 2, 7, 9, and 10, even though it's not activated, you should get a reversal almost immediately. Now, you've got to remember, factor 7 has a short half-life, right? The fa- I mean, I, I sort of remember the factor 7 has a half-life of 7 hours, not quite accurate, but easy way to remember it. So you have to give vitamin K. And if there's any mistake that I've seen, including myself on one occasion, if you're going to give octoplex or bariplex, you must give vitamin K because the drug will start to wear off in about four, five, six, seven, eight hours. And you've got to check the INR after you've given it, pretty soon after you've given it to see if you've given enough. So intracranial hemorrhage, bleeding to death from a GI bleed, you want to get reversal. Vitamin K, absolutely. Prothrombin complex concentrates, absolutely, for the reasons I've suggested. So the only other thing, the TACO risk, in the licensing trial that was done in the United States comparing reversal with FFP compared to Beriplex, in the States they call it Kcentra, the risk of TACO was 4% in the patients getting plasma compared to 0% in the patients getting PCCs. So I think that's key, probably much, much safer. Yeah, because you're giving 80 cc's rather than a liter and a half. Yeah. And the other thing is just about that reversal rate. The only concern I have about a, you know, take the syringe and push with these drugs is there was a case report of a patient who was given 3,000 IU over one minute through a central line catheter, and they had a thrombosis of their RV. So these are pure clotting factors, and so I think probably the best way to give your prothrombin complex is either a very slow push following the manufacturer's instructions or even better what we do at our institution. We put it in a mini bag and then we hand it to the nurse who actually puts it on a pump and runs it at the correct infusion rate. You had touched upon that in the States they have a PCC that's a four-factor PCC. The four-factor PCCs in Canada are octoplex or bariplex. In the States, up until very recently, my understanding is that they've only had three-factor PCCs. I think the most common one is called Bebulin. Just so that we don't confuse our American listeners, could you just explain the difference between the three-factor and the four-factor PCCs, how you uh, reverse warfarin with a three-factor PCC in the United States currently, and what's coming down the tube for for our American listeners? Yeah. Three-factor PCCs have very little factor seven. So it's your, uh, instead of 2, 7, 9, and 10, it's just 2, 9, and 10. Uh, And so when those drugs have historically been used to reverse warfarin, people have added either plasma to give a source of factor 7 or recombinant factor 7A, which is very expensive and concerned regarding increased risk of thrombosis. And so... Now that Kcentra is licensed for use in the United States, I think you're going to see a dramatic reduction in the use of those three-factor PCCs and Kcentra, or what we call Berryplex in Canada, will replace that. I think the only reason you need to know about three-factor PCCs is don't use them. And the second thing is when you're reading the literature on um, PCC studies, you need to look at the methods and say, oh, was this a three-factor or a four-factor PCC? So you know how to interpret the results, the dosaging, etc. Okay, so everything we talk about from now on is assuming that it's four-factor PCC. So we're talking about Bariplex and Octoplex in Canada and this new one in the United States. And with those medications, if you're reversing warfarin, you give the PCC, make sure you're giving the vitamin K. You don't have to worry about plasma or recombinant factor 7. 
Yeah, and keep in mind that the euprothrombin compass concentrates do have some heparin in them. So there's occasionally a patient will have had heparin previously and have had heparin-induced thrombocytopenia, so that's a contraindication. It probably isn't going to happen that often, but you, you certainly want to at least document. You've asked or considered the risk of H. If they've had a previous bad reaction to heparin, that's one case where you may have to use plasma because there's okay. heparin in PCC. Right, so the patient with a known history of HIT. HIT. Okay. Yeah. All right, Dr. Himmel, if you have an older patient on warfarin who comes in with altered mental status after a fall and bonking their head, do you ever give the PCC before you get the INR back? Well, there's no good evidence for that one, is there? But I, I tell you what I have noticed. Every time I see a patient who comes in with a Glasgow coma scale of three or four who's on warfarin and it came on suddenly, I have never seen a case where intracranial hemorrhage was not there. I'd never. I get a CT and they're bleeding. Getting a CT scan may take anywhere from 30 to 60 minutes. And if you look at the studies of intracranial hemorrhages, when they were looking at factor seven, they've clearly demonstrated the time of the major bleed is the first two, three, four hours. So here's what I'm doing at the present time, based on no evidence whatsoever. If the patient's on warfarin, I will draw the INR, I'll get a stat CT, but if they have a very low GCS and came on pretty quickly, I'm clinically, in my mind, about 99% convinced that that person has had intracranial bleed or subdural of some sort, and I'm giving them prothrombin complex concentrate based on no evidence. Now, what dose do I give them? In that situation, I haven't got good evidence, I haven't got the INR back, I give them 1,000 units. I'm prepared to be told, oh, you can't do that. Make sure they've got a bleed and see what your INR is. But I think in that clinical situation where I'm virtually certain they've had intracranial bleed based on history, especially, and in physical findings, I'll give a 1,000 units of octoplex. Realizing full well, it may not be a sufficient dose, but it's my compromise solution. Because if I don't do it, my experience has been 100% of the time I know anecdotal stories aren't worth it, but my personal experience has been 100% of the time, they've all come back with an intracranial bleed or a massive subdural, and I say, shit, I should have given them octoplex. It's now an hour later, and the benefit, as little as maybe anyways, is even going to be still less. Well, I would argue that you've been practicing for 36 years, and you do three times as many shifts as the average emergency doctor. So you've got more than 100 years of clinical experience Sure, it's not a randomized trial, but uh, that's pretty convincing for me. We haven't talked about the dosing of PCCs, but if you actually read the product monograph, it's dosed per INR and weight. And there's lots of controversy about how you should be dosing it. And uh, our more recent Canadian recommendations were to dose as per INR and only look at the weight if the patient is extremely underweight or, or overweight. But obviously the jury is out there. I think the safest thing to do is check the monograph or follow the local protocol. With regards to the emergency management, I have to 100% agree with your approach. There's actually a French study suggesting that a dose of 1,000 is safe. So you start with a dose of 1,000, and if you need to top up, you can do it afterwards. The Canadian recommendations actually are even more aggressive. They suggest to give 2,000 while you're waiting for INR. 
And the reason why I say while you're waiting for INR, because you may be waiting for CT scan for 30 minutes to an hour, but I would argue that in a lot of hospitals, you may be waiting just as long to get your standard coagulation test result. Okay, you, you had mentioned some of the dosing, 1,000 units versus 2,000 units. That's in the, in the patient where you don't even have the INR back yet. Let's say in the patient that you do have the INR back, could you just review the dosing for us? So the current recommendations, Canadian recommendations for doses, states that if your INR is less than three, you give 1,000 units. If it's between three and five, you give 2,000. And if it's more than five, you give 3,000 units. And for extremes of weight, you really do need to consult either the product monograph or the hematologist or transfusion medicine physician who is experiencing in, use, in using these drugs. A lot of institutions have adopted directly the monograph, and the monograph, I would argue, is very complicated to use. So it's um, international units per kilogram of body weight, and then the INR is taking into account, and then you have to round it down or up to the number of vials, and vials come in 500 IU increments. So can get very quickly very confusing to what to calculate. So we suggest that the Canadian guidelines are easy to use, uh, but we also recognize that we may be in some circumstances uh, a little bit underdosing or overdosing. Every hospital has their own protocols. Hamilton's got a protocol. Scarborough General's got a protocol. North York's got a protocol. Everyone's got a protocol. Another hospital protocol. But I will say this. Never give less than 1,000 units. That's your basic low dose. Virtually never give more than 3,000 units. That's your basic upper dose. And then follow your hospital protocol. I want to finish this with the very commonly asked question. The very commonly asked question is, what is the risk of thrombosis following use of PCC? And it is a very, very important question. So we always used to say, well, we really don't know what the risk is. Because people who are anticoagulated obviously are anticoagulated for a reason. They have shown themselves as having prothrombotic phenotype. So what is the risk, the baseline risk of blood clotting? You're also reversing the anticoagulation very rapidly, so that may carry a risk in itself. But that's not really the question people want to know. They want to know, as compared to plasma, what is the additional risk of PCC? And until very recently, we only had not so good quality studies, and we have this meta-analysis basically quoted an exceptionally low thromboembolic risk of about less than 2%. But if you go into that meta-analysis, you will also notice that the majority of studies included in that meta-analysis were studies conducted by pharmaceutical companies and that selectively excluded all high-risk patients. So I think the thrombotic risk of 2% is not accurate. In fact, most of us have run uh, quality improvement projects in our institutions and just to see in, in reality what is the thrombotic risk that we see on a day-to-day. -day. And I would argue that it is closer to 4 to 5%. Now, how does that compare to plasma? There are two randomized controlled trials going on in the United States that are randomizing people to PCC, four-factor PCC versus plasma. One involves Bariplex, the other one is involving Octoplex. Octoplex trial is still recruiting. Bariplex trial is finished. And in fact, they presented their findings at the American College of Emergency Physicians annual meeting in Denver in December 2012. And their preliminary yet non-peer-reviewed results suggest that the rate of thromboembolic complications in PCC group was higher 
than in plasma group by about one and a half times, so 7.8% in PCC group versus 5.5% in the plasma group. So yes, compared to plasma, there is a small increased risk of thromboembolic complications. The corollary of that is that uh, the reversal was substantially faster and more complete with PCC as compared to plasma. So it all comes down to risk benefit. That's probably a lot less than, than recombinant factor seven. Oh yes, I think we can be sure about that. Okay, that actually segues nicely into recombinant factor seven. Five, ten years ago, people were using recombinant factor seven for brain sure bleeds. Was. It was sort of the new biggest thing. In 2013, are there any indications for recombinant factor seven in the emergency department? Okay, so uh, fortunately we have published in the last two years several meta-analyses done looking at trials that were done with prophylactic use of recombinant factor 7A, meaning before the person starts to bleed, so in the uh, surgical setting, as well as studies done that were uh, therapeutic trials. So these are bleeding patients with variceal bleeds, trauma trials where patients were already bleeding. And in those trials, clearly showing there's no difference in mortality rates um, with the use of recombinant factor 7a. So there's no benefit and there was clear harm. So there was clear increased risk of uh, life-threatening thromboembolic events and we're talking strokes and MIs. So you can say no benefit, clear harm in the setting of either prophylactic or therapeutic use, we shouldn't be using recombinant 7A. And not only that, it's extremely expensive. The dosages used in the trauma trial were about $25,000 per patient. No benefit, very expensive, shouldn't be used. The indication for recombinant 7A in the emergency department is bleeding in a patient with hemophilia who has developed inhibitors. And that's it. <laughs> I'll say one finishing point. If someone's got epistaxis that's not life-threatening, or a big subconscious type of hemorrhage that's not life-threatening, or gum bleeding that's not life-threatening, and their INR is up in their warfarin, consider not giving octoplex. Consider treating it locally. Octoplex is for life-threatening bleeding. There's, I'm sure every hematologist will tell you, and every lab technologist will tell you, we see octoplex being used for very questionable indications. And, and just to remind you that talking about personal anecdotes, one of the very first patients that I've personally delivered PCC to the trauma room was a patient who had a very bad trauma and um, had a mechanical valve implanted in our hospital. So we had records, everyone, that he is warfarinized and he has this mechanical valve. Uh, it was taking a long time to get an INR back. The patient was significantly bleeding. We have administered a dose of PCC empirically, fully expecting that INR to come back elevated. The INR subsequently came back at one. The patient was non-compliant. And upon transfer to an ICU, he was actually found that he was not moving the right side of his body. He was diagnosed with a massive left MCA stroke. And the question to this day in my mind was, did he have a stroke because he didn't take his warfarin and that's why he got in the car accident in the first place? Or did we cause this by giving unnecessary PCC? So yes, it is a rare event, and I hope it doesn't happen to anyone else. But it surely made me think a little bit more carefully before giving it. 
I just want to say one more thing about uh, something that's done wrong with warfarin. We have many, many patients that come into the emergency department that have elevated INRs, and usually their INRs in the therapeutic range, and they fractured their hip, and they have to go to the OR. It's not a medical emergency surgery. They just, in the next 24 hours, we need to fix the hip. And what I see commonly done is someone just gives them two milligrams of PO vitamin K, because they think and expect that by the next day, they're going to have an INR of 1.0 when they're ready to go to the OR. Well, oral vitamin K takes you just back to your therapeutic range. It takes one to two days to start working. So what happens is they get called to the OR eight hours later, and of course the INR is still 2.5 because the oral vitamin K hasn't even started to work. And now we're faced with a patient that has a slot for surgery that has to have their surgery delayed. So it's really important if that patient has to go to the operating room, even if it's not a medical emergency, it's just gonna happen in the next 24 to 48 hours, you really have to use intravenous vitamin K to get it reversed in time to make them ready for surgery. Let's review the reversal of warfarin in the setting of a major bleed or a life-threatening bleed and what you need to know about vitamin K and PCCs. First, vitamin K. In the event of a major bleed, forget about PO vitamin K, use IV. So give 10 milligrams of IV vitamin K and 50 cc's of normal saline over 30 minutes. We used to think that the risk of anaphylaxis was significant with IV vitamin K, but it's extremely low, about the same as that with ceftriaxone. Remember that vitamin K will take at least two or three hours to even start working, but it will completely reverse the INR within 24 hours. For patients who need to go to the OR, use IV vitamin K rather than PO, as Dr. Callum explained. How about four-factor PCCs like Octoplex and Baraplex in Canada? Four-factor PCCs reverse warfarin almost immediately, but remember that it wears off in a few hours as well, so that's why you can't forget to give the vitamin K as well. Give it by slow push or in a mini bag on a pump. For patients who come in who you suspect have an intracranial bleed, who are on warfarin, and you haven't got an INR or a CT head back, you can consider giving 1,000 units, or in some guidelines, 2,000 units of PCC on spec for these patients. For other dosing, check your protocol but the Canadian guidelines are probably easier to use. They state that an INR of less than 3, you give 1,000 units of PCC. For an INR of 3 to 5, you give 2,000 units. And for an INR greater than 5, you give 3,000 units. Some experts recommend adjusting for patients with extreme weight. What is the risk of thrombosis following PCC compared to FFP? Based on two recent small RCTs, there may be a slightly higher risk for PCC, but we don't really know just yet. Finally, PCCs are indicated only for life-threatening bleeding for patients on warfarin with an elevated INR. If you don't have access to PCC, then FFP is the second-line medication. You use four to six units. It's not ideal because it takes longer to give it, it takes much longer to start working, and you also run a much higher risk of TACO and trolley. Dr. Himmel, we've talked about the reversal of warfarin in the setting of a life-threatening bleed. Let's get to the dreaded life-threatening bleed in the patient on one of the newer anticoagulants, on dabigatran or apixaban or rivaroxaban. How do you manage these patients in the emergency department? 
the evidence here is very, very thin. So we're doing strictly empirical sort of stuff. There's a few studies I've, I've relied on. One was published in Circulation, which basically said that you can reverse the laboratory abnormalities of rivaroxaban by giving prothrombin complex concentrates, but you can't with the bigotran. So we know at least in terms of rivaroxaban, prothrombin complex concentrates will correct the laboratory abnormality. Next, there's different philosophies about treating bleeds like this. Philosophy one says, if you can't do anything, why try? That is not the mindset of the emergency doctor. The mindset of the emergency doctor is, I'm going to throw a kitchen sink at this person who has an intracranial hemorrhage or has a GI bleed with exsanguination. And we're talking about those situations mainly. Exsanguinating GI bleed, you're dying in front of the physician, or an intracranial hemorrhage. So there's only a few good sources I've looked at. And I've had to basically look at a couple of review articles published by two well-known people. One's a fellow called Jeffrey Weitz, a specialist at Hamilton, who's done a lot of research on the bigotran. And the other one is a review by Mark Crowther, published in the European Heart Journal just recently. And they said, well, what do you do with GI bleeds or brain hemorrhaging? Let's talk about the bigotran first. The bigotran has very low protein binding. The bigotran is 80% limited by kidney function. So number one, uh, use supportive measures. Well, now what do supportive measures mean? Local measures, pressure, IV fluids. They often say give blood if a person's anemic, give platelets if they're anti-platelet agents. So the supportive measures are fine. Then they say, well, if you're taking a dose in the last hour or two or three, consider giving activated charcoal. Well, forget that. No one's gonna, the number of people who can kind of overdose of 30 the bigotran, I guess within an hour or two, they can activate charcoal, so forget that. That's just a waste of one sentence and a bit of paper space. Then they say, make sure the person's well hydrated with intravenous fluids, and I think that's perfectly reasonable to bigotran. It's eliminated through the, the, kid, the renal system. Make sure the person well hydrated is absolutely essential. So the emergency doctor is going to say, now, how about reversal agents? Are you going to give octoplex? Are you going to give bariplex? Are you going to give FIBA and so forth? And here's what I've read, basically. When it comes to the bigotran, there are no human studies which show reversal of PTT with these drugs. On the other hand, there are a couple of studies in animals. I think basically, uh, I think rats where they've chopped their tails. I think rabbits where they've bashed them in the kidneys. And there is some suggestion that octoplex will reverse some of the bleeding of the bigotran, regardless of the inability to change the laboratory parameters. So here's what Jeffrey White says, and here's what Mark Crowther says. Supportive treatment, intravenous fluids, local measures, and if you're at the point where you want to do something because a person's about to die, you can consider, and they have actually used this in case studies using octoplex. So what's the dose of octoplex in these situations with the bigotran and, of course, rivaroxaban? Well, there's two doses you can use. The, the, the review published in Circulation said... 40 units per kilogram. The review by Mark Crowther said 50 units per kilogram. So if you want to really be keen and you want an antidote and you want to memorize one, it's Octuplex, and you can use it for any of the OAC with life-threatening bleeding, and you can use it at 40 units per kilogram or 50 units per kilogram, and you can give it as the rate suggested. So that's antidote number one of the pharmacological antidotes. Realizing full well, there's no evidence for clinical benefit. Right, other than opinion and some animal studies. So that's the bottom line. Octoplex, 40 per kilogram or 50, depending on the study you want to believe.
And then they were both recommended waiting half an hour and seeing what happens. If the bleeding continues, what do you do next? Well, both articles suggested the same next drug. And it was not repeating octoplex. It was using FIBA, factor eight inhibiting binding activity. So what's the dose of FIBA? Well, the article in circulation said 50 units per kilogram. And the article in the European Heart Study Journal said 80 units per kilogram. So the next step is FIBA, 50 per kilogram or 80 per kilogram. But they don't give it immediately. You wait for half an hour after the octoplex or variplex was given. So once you've done that, is there any further steps you can go after that? Well, if you're still bleeding after that, I think uh, whatever you do is going to be of questionable value. But what's mentioned in the articles, and I've never had to do this, of course, but in the articles what's mentioned the following, they suggest using recombinant factor 7 as your last kitchen sink approach. So those are the antidotes as we have it today. I know they're working other antidotes I'm not familiar with. And I say many eMERGE doctors will quote that study in circulation saying that the bigot tran had no reversal agent and rivaroxaban you could use the PCCs, you know, but, but we, we know from animal studies there may be clinical benefits. So intravenous fluids, supportive therapy, octoplex and bariplex in those rare situations, and the dose as I've suggested. Okay, and how about uh, dialysis for patients on dubigatran? Yes, yes, absolutely. So dialysis is not going to be of any value in the pixaban or rivaroxaban. Those two drugs are highly protein-bound. So dubigatran is 80% not protein-bound. Dialysis makes sense. I think there's been one small study which suggests that four hours of dialysis will remove approximately 60 or 70% of dubigatran. And that's probably true. But I think it's worth mentioning it. But i be quite frank... For me to get a hold of a nephrologist at the analysis unit and to convince them to take a transfer from my hospital to put a catheter into patient is either never going to happen or it's going to take about a day to happen. At that point, it's sort of pointless. Now, you may be working at some massive specialty institutions where you've got dialysis right there and you've got some very keen people who are prepared to do it. So I think it's worth knowing about theoretically and maybe discussing it, but I don't think that where I work, it's realistic for me to get dialysis to remove 60% of the dibigatran within four hours of me seeing a patient. Okay, so for dibigatran only, dialysis is an option, but realistically, it's really not much Unless of an you're option. Unless you're in a very special institution with very Even special in those, people. In the special institutions, it will yeah, it'll be, be, tough. be very tough. And then for pariviroxaban and apixaban... No role for dialysis. There's no role for dialysis, but there is a role for PCCs. In animal studies. Based on opinions. And of, opinion. Of, of individuals who feel obliged to give an opinion. Okay. And now we have two transfusion hematologists in front of us. What are your opinions in terms of reversing the new anticoagulants with PCCs? So I would c- completely concur what you said. The only caveat for the FIBA and the recombinant factor 7A, one, neither of them are widely available outside of large academic hospitals, so they're not even going to be an option. The recombinant 7A, in addition to that, is very expensive and only lasts two hours. So it would require, until you got that drug out of the system, repeated doses of a drug we know to be thrombogenic, so it's a really a suboptimal therapy. And the only other kind of general good measure um, we would apply in this situation is using antifibrinolytic agents, whether it's topical, orally, or intravenously, to try and buy some time until you can clear that drug out of the system. You're talking about cyclocapron. Well, you know, 
I've learned from experience and talking to a lot of epidemiologists, just because something makes sense doesn't mean it's true. However, if it makes sense, it may be better than the kitchen sink. Cyclocapron works on a totally different mechanism. It deals with the fibrinolytic aspect of things. And I'm quite surprised that the articles I've read, they don't really emphasize cyclocapron. But giving a gram of cyclocapron seems like a very rational thing to do in those situations. Because even if people are on the bigotry or ivoroxaban, they're producing some fibrin. And a little bit of fibrin they produce, you don't want that destroyed by plasminogen. So certainly giving cyclocapron, otherwise known as tranosamic acid, a gram, I think is very reasonable. And a dose of a gram as a bolus and then a gram over the next eight hours gets you complete shut off in the vast majority of patients of their fibrinolytic system. So it's more than enough for the vast majority of patients. And that drug's widely available. Okay. And so, cheap. So just to sort of summarize your approach to this, for all of these agents, you're going to use your general measures, whether that's topical, pressure, getting a surgical intervention, your interventional radiology, your antifibrinolytics, whether it's topical or oral, um, as your general overall measures. For all of these agents, you can also use PCCs or activated PCCs, your FIBA, depending on what's available to you. We're not sure which of those, which choice is the best. Most people will only have PCCs available to them, and the dose is about 50 IU per kilo, which is a much bigger dose than we would use for warfarin. For patients that are on the dibigatran, because it's renally cleared, you also want to aggressively hydrate them to get the drug out of the system. And if it's available to you and you need to, you could also use dialysis. With dibigatran, remember that your PTT isn't going to get better with any of those blood products that you're going to infuse. It might help the bleeding, but the numbers aren't going to get better. The only thing that's going to drop that PTT is just time when you clear out the drug. In contrast, rivaroxaban, the INR is elevated on the drug. When you give your PCCs, the INR comes down, and we hope that also translates into a reduction in bleeding. So that's currently, in 2013, a great summary of what we can do in terms of reversing the newer anticoagulants. Dr. Pavensky, I understand that there's some new possible antidotes that might be coming down the pipe soon. Could you just tell us about the cutting edge of, uh, of these so, newer uh, anti- antidotes for the newer anticoagulants? The pharmaceutical companies who produce these drugs actively researching the possibility of creating an antidote, a specific antidote akin to the vitamin K for warfarin. And uh, my understanding is that they actually do have antidotes and they're going to be starting trials. So maybe in a couple of years from now, we'll be much better informed about what to do than we are now. Okay, we're going to move on to a totally different subject now and present a new case. The new case is that of a 54-year-old woman with a history of metastatic lung CA on chemo who comes in for follow-up for epistaxis to get the packing out. You gently pull out the packing, and her nares both start to bleed profusely. Then you order some blood work. Her hemoglobin comes back at 83, platelets are 19, and the INR and PTT are normal. So Dr. Pavensky, how low is a low platelet count? In other words, at what threshold are patients at risk for major bleeding events with their thrombocytopenia? It really depends on why people are 
thrombocytopenic in the first place. So in this case, uh, presumably this woman is thrombocytopenic because of myelosuppressive effects of chemotherapy. And this patient population is actually relatively well studied. And uh, the studies indicate that it is not until you hit a platelet count of about 10 that you, be, you are at risk for spontaneous bleeding. And this is also consequently is the trigger for platelet transfusion. Patients who have um, hypoproliferative thrombocytopenia or low platelet count because the bone marrow is not working for one reason or another, but who also have coagulopathy or who are septic, for those patients you can argue that a trigger of 20 is perhaps safer, but that is not based on as robust data. And what would you expect in terms of how much and how quickly the platelet count would be corrected for each pool of platelets if you do give platelets? So if you were to transfuse this woman, and I would argue that transfusion in this case may be considered, uh, she is bleeding, her platelet count is 19. And say, for example, you've tried to do the um, local control of bleeding and perhaps tried antifibrinolytic agent and failing that, you would consider transfusing her following transfusion of one dose of platelets. So what it means in Canada is one Buffy coat pool, which is four platelet concentrates suspended in about 200 cc's of plasma from a male donor, or one single donor platelet, which means that that has been collected by apheresis from a single donor. So you have one very large platelet concentrate suspending in the plasma of that same donor. So following transfusion of that one adult dose, your platelet count should go up by about between 20 and 40. And the reason I would say there is a range is because it's highly dependent on whether the patient is actively bleeding, has active clot, is consuming because their spleen is large or for another reason. So that's why ideally it should be closer to 40. In reality, most of our patients go up by about 20. Yeah, so nobody, nobody orders a four-pack or five units of platelets anymore. You order a pool. And in your brain, if you're used to units, a pool is about four or five units. Okay. And it's really important to order one adult pool um, as your dose instead of asking for four platelets or five platelets because somebody might inadvertently transfuse four adult pools or four doses of platelets in right. error. Good practical point. Um, we talked about red cell transfusions in terms of cross and match and all that. Uh, what about four platelets? Do we need to cross and match platelets before we transfuse? We do not cross-match platelets. However, we do need a blood group prior to transfusion of platelets. And we generally like to use ABO identical platelets, which means that if you're group A, you should be receiving group A platelets. Now, in reality, that is very difficult to accomplish. The reason for that is most places either do not carry platelets, or if they carry them, they carry them in limited numbers. And usually when you need platelets, you need them right away. So you cannot necessarily wait for an hour or two for a group-specific product to arrive from the blood supplier. The next question is, well, what is the risk if you do out-of-group transfusions? So there are two consequences of ABO-incompatible platelet transfusions. If they're plasma-incompatible, the risk is hemolysis. If they're platelet-incompatible, the risk is not getting as good of a platelet count as you would have expected. The key bottom line to the emergency physician, though, is 
they need to know when they transfuse platelets, what was the group of the patient and what was the group of the product. So if the patient has an adverse reaction or you don't get a rise in the platelet count, you can interpret that with some background knowledge and say, ah, platelets didn't work probably because they were uh, ABO incompatible. Quite often the technologists will look after that for you, but you may get the occasional call technologist says, we cannot match the group for platelets. Is it okay if we give them a different group? And the discussion will be, well, is it safe? If, you, if you've forgotten everything, just remember, ideally platelets should be ABO matched. And if they're not, you can probably still use them, give them all these conditions. The technologists will often call you and say, I, we, we don't have the same group of platelets. Can we give such and such a group? If you've forgotten everything, say, well, I'm not quite sure, is it compatible? Is that safe to do? The technologist is going to answer that question. If it's safe to do it, you can go ahead and do it. Realizing full well you've got to shut the count afterwards, and if it's slower than you thought, you won't be surprised. And in terms of the um, red cells, there are actually very few red cells remaining in the platelet concentrate, but it is conceivable that you're going to have a few, and that's enough to alloimmunize uh, an Rh-negative recipient against D-antigen. So we usually recommend that if you're transfusing a female of childbearing potential, and the reason I use that language is because a 10-year-old girl is not of reproductive age, but the hope is that she will be one day and you do not want to alloimmunize her. So um, patients of child, with childbearing potential should, um, females of childbearing potential should be, um, ideally, if they are Rh-negative, receive Rh-negative platelets. Um, in the absence of having a product like that, you may consider giving them Rh immunoglobulin in order to prevent them from being sensitized by the D antigen that would be present on Rh positive red cells. I'll restate that real simply. If you give an O negative woman, O positive platelets, there's going to be a couple of red cells there and you probably should give them RH immunoglobulin to get rid of the red blood cells in that platelet transfusion. Let's keep this simple. And space won't defeat us. No pity, no pedestals. No distance to cheat us. So let's keep this simple. In review, in most patients, including those on chemotherapy, a platelet count of less than 10 puts them at risk for spontaneous intracranial hemorrhage, and so these patients need to be treated urgently, especially if they're bleeding. For a subset of patients, like those who have a coagulopathy in addition to their thrombocytopenia, you may want to transfuse them with platelets when their platelet count drops below 20 rather than 10. When transfusing platelets, order one pool of platelets, which is equivalent to about four units of platelets that we used to order in the old days. While you don't need to cross and type these patients for their platelet transfusion, you do need a blood group, and ideally the platelets should be ABO matched. In females of childbearing potential who are RH negative, they should receive RH negative platelets, and if you give an RH negative female of childbearing potential RH positive platelets, they should receive Rh immunoglobulin.
You can expect the platelet count to go up between 20 and 40 after the transfusion, depending on the compatibility of the platelets, how briskly they're bleeding, and how quickly they're consuming the platelets. Next, we're going to discuss what to do when confronted with a thrombocytopenic patient who needs an invasive procedure. Let's move on to talking about procedures and thrombocytopenia. So let's say you want to do an LP or a central line. We had touched upon this in our procedures episode. What platelet count would be your threshold to do an invasive procedure like an LP or a central line? Dr. Himmel? Well, I'll give you my opinion, and then I'm going to have to ask Dr. Callum because she has written the chapter in the book on this topic. So what's the traditional answer? Generally speaking, if you're doing a general surgical procedure, most general surgeons and most people doing a thoracentesis or a paracentesis want a platelet count of 50,000. And the belief is at 50,000, you'll minimize the risk of bleeding. So the traditional answer is 50,000 for surgery where there's risk of bleeding is the way to go. The exception being is if you're operating in a closed space where there are potential life-threatening complications, which basically means a spinal cord doing a lumbar puncture or the brain surgery, neurosurgery, you don't want bleeding at all. And the official answer there was, if you've got a procedure with the risk of central nervous system bleeding, you want a total count of 100,000. So general surgeons are going to tell you, I want 50,000, and your surgeons are going to tell you, I want 100,000. That's the traditional teaching. And I suppose most hospitals are going to stick with that. So what's the emergency doctor do? Well, I think the first thing you do is you get the best and most skilled person to do the procedure. Because I suspect the most important determining factor here with an LP is not your platelet count, it's the skill of the person doing it. So a very, very skilled person will probably get less bleeding with a platelet count of 10 than an amateur with a platelet count of 100,000. So get the most skilled person who's got the most skilled technology to do it. That being said, there are certainly a host of articles from specialized centers where patients get regular lumbar punctures for leukemia or subclavian lines. And there are published studies which have demonstrated that many a young person has had lumbar punctures with platelet counts of 10 with excellent results. And similarly, subclavian lines with platelet counts of 20,000 to 30,000 have perfect acceptable results. So skill is really, really important. And there's often a false belief when you give platelets. And the belief is they're going to help you. Well, first of all, platelets are stunned for a while when you give them to a patient. Then you can never be totally certain the amount of pooled you gave is going to get the count you want. Then you've got to check the platelet count after you give the platelets as a potential option. Then you have to get the platelets back soon enough so the platelet count doesn't drop anymore. So I would say the traditional answer is, like I said, 50,000 for general surgical procedures, 50,000 for a thoracotesis, paracetesis, 100,000 for a lumbar puncture, which the anesthetist is probably going to want at your hospital, or a central nervous system procedure. But I'm going to have to defer to Dr. Callum on this one, because this is a very tough topic. Yeah, so there are no randomized trials targeting different platelet counts for different procedures. Um, but we do have very large retrospective studies. Some of the central line studies are 3,000, 4,000 lines placed. And it, for epidurals, we have very large studies of tons of women having epidurals placed with thrombocytopenia. So it's clear that there are some procedures where you don't have to worry about the platelet count at all. And these are common procedures, a paracentesis, a thoracentesis. There are some procedures where 
from large series, you can see that there's no bleeding complications as long as that platelet count is above 20 to 25. And that's kind of in that category of your central line placement. There's no clear increased risk of bleeding once you get to 20 to 25. For uh, uh, lumbar puncture, there's clear evidence you can go at least as low as 50. There isn't a lot of data to go lower, with the exception of a large volume of pediatric ALL kids having LPs down to 10 with no increased risk of bleeding. So it's very common trigger on hematology is you just need to play the count of 20 to do an LP for chemo. And that's our routine. And the neurosurgical literature often quotes this 100, although there are more recent studies really looking at that you could probably push that uh, platelet count lower. Those cutoffs of 50 and 100 come from very old studies of bleeding time studies showing that your bleeding time starts to go up when it goes below 100. It really starts to go up below 50. And that's where those historic numbers come from, but they're not really based on very good evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess it really, you have to, for the emergency doctor, they have to assess their own ability of their skill in that particular procedure. Because a lot of these studies that you're quoting are based on, for example, LPs done by anesthetists uh, who are... Pre-skilled. Who are or very... Hematologists, or, or hemat- level, highly specialized. Highly specialized hematologists, hematologists who, who probably have a higher skill level than the average emergency doctor doing an LP. So... That has to be taken into account for the listener out there who's trying to decide at what threshold they're going to they're going to be comfortable doing an LP or doing a central line at. You know, if you're Jamie Blicker and you've done a thousand central lines, then you might be more comfortable with a platelet count of twenty thousand versus someone who's only done twenty or thirty central lines. So this is obviously a really controversial area. In review, there's really three big procedures that the emergency doc does where you need to think about the platelet count above which you're safe doing the procedure. First is ultrasound-guided central lines. And from what Dr. Callum's explaining, it's safe to do a central line with a platelet count as low as 20 to 25, again, depending on your skill level. For an LP, you want a platelet count of at least above 50. Again, depending on your skill level, you might want it as high as 100. And in terms of ultrasound-guided thoracentesis and paracentesis, you can go as low as a platelet count of 10. If you have a patient whose platelet count is 10 before your procedure, you give a platelet transfusion. An hour after that platelet transfusion, the platelet count is 10. That patient will never respond to regular off-the-shelf platelets. And giving three more doses, it will still be 10. And so that's where you have to pick up the phone, call your blood bank, call your hematologist and say, we have a platelet refractory patient. I need help in getting specially matched platelets for that patient. Just don't keep throwing platelets at them. Next, we're going to talk about the risks of platelet transfusion. So we were were talking about red cell transfusion and the risks uh, for sepsis before. Dr. Himmel, can you just review for us how how platelet transfusions are different in that respect? are stored at room temperature. They're stored at, in a warm room temperature. They're stored between 20 and 24 degrees. So they're going to they're going to carry bacteria. And the instance of bacterial infection in platelets is at least 1 in 10,000. And if that person is going to get bacterium sepsis, at least 10 or 20% may die. So the figures I've seen quoted are when you get one pool of platelets, the risk of getting sepsis is 1 in 10,000, which is not low. And risk of death is about 1 in 60,000, which is not low either. So it's an issue. 
Next, we're going to talk about indications for platelet transfusion in the patient with ITP. Generally, we've, we've been taught that no matter how low the platelet count is in a patient with ITP, that giving them transfusion of platelets is not going to help. Their treatment should involve corticosteroids or IVIG, going down that road. Are there any situations in which you would give platelet transfusion to a patient with ITP? Sure. So I have a great case for this that I saw a few months ago. So we had an older gentleman come in. He'd had a slip and a fall. He'd hit his head, and he'd come in with decreased level of consciousness. And he was covered in petechiae. Platelet count was one. So he had uh, immune thrombocytopenia that he just hadn't been aware of. And he had a large intracranial hemorrhage. And so we have a person there with now a life-threatening bleeding with a platelet count of one. And those are the kind of patients, not only do we throw the corticosteroids and IVIG at to them um, because we need to get the fastest possible rise in platelet counts. We will also give them platelet transfusions. So we gave them prednisone, IVIG, and then two doses of platelets in preparation to go to the operating room to drain the bleed. And with that combination, his platelet count was 99 on repeat, and he was off to the operating room. About 40 to 60% of patients with ITP actually respond to platelet transfusions. The complete etiology of ITP is not completely understood. Classically, it was just peripheral destruction of your platelets, but now we're coming to understand there's also a reduced production, not just completely clearance, and so there are many patients that respond to platelets. In contrast, we have patients who you give platelet after platelet, and the platelet count is one, 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 and it never changes because they're rapidly clearing them. You give a couple of platelet transfusions to those patients, doesn't work, it's never going to work, um, and you need to go on to plan B. Okay. Certainly a non-bleeding patient with ITP who walks in with a platelet count of three, you can do nothing in terms of giving platelets. Correct. It's only for life-threatening or some space-occupying lesion that you would have to give uh, platelet transfusions. There are a few conditions where we classically teach not to transfuse platelets. So in ITP, they're not contraindicated. They may not work, but in circumstances where the patient is bleeding, you should be using them. But for patients who have heparin-induced thrombocytopenia or TTP, thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura, where there is a thrombotic thrombocytopenia, again, I would reserve platelet transfusion only for life-threatening bleeding. And the reason for that is that there is uh, both theoretical risk and risk that has been demonstrated in case studies that um, transfusion of platelets in these patients may actually trigger thrombosis. Okay. So I'd actually like to sort of back up a bit Sometimes we're presented with a patient with low platelets who are sent in from their primary care physician, let's say, but they don't have any known diagnosis of ITP or TTP, or we don't, we don't know why they have a low platelet count. It happens quite often, and you know it would be a whole other episode to go through the entire differential diagnosis of thrombocytopenia, but could you just review for us the basics of how to diagnose a patient with ITP and some of the other more important causes of thrombocytopenia for eMERGE docs. At least for the first 15 minutes when you've seen the patient. If a patient presents to the emergency room with low platelet count and you have no history to suggest a diagnosis that has been made in the past, I think it is imperative to at least start thinking of what may be the underlying problem. And it could be ITP, it could be TTP, it could be a lot of things. It could be marrow failure, it could be myelodysplastic syndrome. But none of these things are immediately life-threatening, with the exception of TTP, which is thrombotic thrombocytopenic purpura. And that is one diagnosis 
you should rule out when you have a patient with new thrombocytopenia. So any patient who is coming in with anemia and low platelet count, I would argue, must have a blood film review. And what we're looking for is fragments, otherwise known as schistocytes. If you see those on the film, I think you should be suspecting TTP and you should be thinking about transferring this patient to a facility that can treat patients with TTP. The other rapidly available test is LDH, or um, lactodehydrogenase enzyme. It's any lab can run it for you, and if it's elevated again, it would be in keeping with this diagnosis. There are lots of other more sophisticated tests you can do, but I think these are the first tests that I would start with to sort of set you on the right path. And if certainly if you see uh, presence of anemia, thrombocytopenia, essentially normal coagulation uh, tests, elevated LDH, fragments on the film, that is very concerning for TTP. Now, most of you would never see a case of TTP. It is extraordinarily rare. The incidence in North America is estimated about, at about 3 per million. However, it may happen, and it is imperative to recognize it right away. If you are suspecting it, I recommend you start arranging a transfer to a facility that has plasmapheresis, because the only treatment that has been shown to be effective in treating these patients is plasmapheresis. And while you're waiting to be transferred to a plasmapheresis facility, you should um, start infusion of frozen plasma. This is probably the only time where, as a blood banker, I'm giving you permission to give plasma with the normal coagulation tests, and you may need to explain to your transfusion medicine technologist why you're doing that, that this is the diagnosis you're suspecting. And uh, the old notion that TTP patients present with PENTAD is really a detrimental teaching because by the time you start developing neurological symptoms such as seizures, decreased level of consciousness, renal failure, it may be too late for these patients. So you're basing your diagnosis on anemia, low platelet count, and evidence of fragments on the blood film. And I would argue that it is more important to send this patient to another facility for evaluation than making it 100% sure that you are on the right path. Chances are this patient may not turn out to have TTP. However, if they do, you would have, you would have saved their life by this quick management. So we can't talk about platelet transfusions without talking about bleed secondary to antiplatelet agents. So it all started with aspirin about 120 years ago, but now in 2013, we have many alternatives to aspirin. There's clopidogrel, trade name Plavix. There's Placergrill, trade name Effient. There's Ticagrelor, trade name Brillinta. There's the ASA Diperatomol sustained release, trade name Agronox, and there's Eptifibutide, trade name Integralin. And not, oh, and I forgot one. There's also Tyrofiban, trade name Agristat. Luckily, we don't need to know everything there is to know about every indication for these antiplatelet agents, but as ED docs, we do need to know how to manage patients who are bleeding on these meds. So let me throw out a case. We've got a 55-year-old man with a history of hypertension and smoking, and he comes in after snorting cocaine with an altered mental status. 
He's on an ACE inhibitor and he's on aspirin, 81 milligrams a day. His routine blood work shows a normal INR and PTT, and a CT of his head shows a deep intracranial hemorrhage with a bit of midline shift. So Dr. Pavensky, when it comes to antiplatelet agent-associated major bleeding, is there a role for platelet transfusion first? And how about DDAVP, and is there any role for DDAVP in antiplatelet agent-associated bleeding? So this is also a common question that uh, we get and a common scenario where a patient is coming in with evidence of bleeding in their head and then they subsequently found that they are taking some sort of antiplatelet agent. And the next question that comes in is that should these patients receive a platelet transfusion? There's no prospective studies, good or bad, addressing this question. And traditionally, platelet transfusions have been used to manage them. With all desperate circumstances, we tend to do desperate things. And if I get this call, I would ordinarily issue platelets for this patient. What I usually do is say that, why don't you take this first dose, see how they do. And if you're concerned that the hematoma is expanding or they're getting neurologically worse, we can give another adult dose of platelets. The trouble with a lot of these antiplatelet agents also is that at least their biological half-life is fairly long. And so if you've recently taken an antiplatelet drug, just as your native platelets are being poisoned by the drug, so would be your transfused ones. And that is unfortunately something we cannot resolve. And I can't even comment on some of the new antiplatelet agents because there's just nothing. They have not been studied. But for aspirin vis-a-vis, say, clopidogrel, there's one study that was of interest because it showed that just on the basis of pure biochemical properties of the uh, active sites on the platelet that could be uh, interfered with clopidogrel, at least two adult doses of platelets are required to reverse clopidogrel effect, whereas for aspirin, we expect that a single dose should be sufficient. Now, about DDAVP... DDAVP has been reported in uh, case reports to reverse uh, clopidogrel with variable success. DDAVP is also classically used to reverse aspirin. And I unfortunately cannot comment if there is more evidence for aspirin versus clopidogrel. Suffice it to say, you can try using it. But also remember that DDAVP is also not without side effects. So you can use DDAVP. You can use platelet transfusions, and I'll open the floor if you have any other comments, Jeannie. The only other, uh, you know, there's no data in this particular situation of using DDAVP for an intracranial hemorrhage and on aspirin. There are studies done using DDAVP pre-cardiac surgery in many of those patients on aspirin, and it did not reduce the risk of bleeding and it increased the risk of thrombosis, doubled the risk of a postoperative MI. They've done studies of patients on aspirin who were bleeding post-bypass surgery and randomizing them to DDAVP or placebo, and there was no dramatic effect on bleeding. Some studies where they detected platelet dysfunction with thromboelastography, kind of whole blood clotting times, and that appeared to possibly some benefit of DDAVP, but we're talking almost no evidence for that. And so I don't ever recommend using DDAVP for any platelet dysfunction resulting from a drug. And I use the same one dose if it's aspirin, a double dose if it's Plavix, and and then go clinically based on continued bleeding. Yeah, so I'll just add a few comments from my emergency perspective. 
there's bleeding in your brain and there's bleeding everywhere else. That's a bit different from the new oral anticoagulants. Bleeding everywhere else, I'm not going to give platelets. I've seen bad epistaxis and gum bleeding and GI bleeding. They don't get platelets. They get local treatment and so forth. That's point number one. Point number two, as far as brain bleeding goes, there's a belief that when you take aspirin, the half-life is so long, your platelets are all gone forever. Well, you've got to be more specific. Your platelets are screwed for the duration of the platelets, of course. And that's one way of putting it, I guess. But the half-life of aspirin is 20 minutes. Unlike Plavix. When you take aspirin, two hours later, the aspirin's gone. It's no longer in your body. It's metabolized by the liver. It's go, it goes to your gut, your portal vein, to your liver. It's gone. So when you give people a pool of platelets two or three hours after the last aspirin dose, those platelets are not going to be paralyzed by aspirin. They'll be fine. So clearly, the evidence-based evidence isn't there, but rest assured, when you give somebody one pool of platelets, accepting the risk of sepsis and, and, and trolley and so forth, and they had aspirin more than two hours earlier, those platelets are going to be perfectly fine, at least as fine as platelets are ever going to be. Now, because I have heard from many lectures, the aspirin is there forever, and that's not the case at all. Now, as far as Plavix goes, I've heard several different opinions and read several different opinions. Some people argue, well, the half-life of Plavix is 12 to 18 hours. Uh, it's going to be there forever. You're wasting your time. But if you look at the metabolism of Plavix, it's quickly metabolized by the cytogrove system to an intermediate metabolite, and you're going to get some trivial benefit by giving platelets. So I, I certainly think the two units for Plavix make sense. I think the one unit for aspirin makes sense physiologically, but it really makes sense for aspirin. So what I tend to do is call in, call in your surgeon, and everyone has their own opinion. American neurosurgeons like platelets. Canadian neurosurgeons uh, are not as positive about it. Certainly, I saw a patient at East General about uh, six months ago. He, nice guy, the, a, 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 the father-in-law of a colleague of mine. This guy wakes up in the morning, his only drug is aspirin. And suddenly he's having trouble reading the newspaper, gets into his car, and he's crossing the middle of the road. And of course, the CT scan showed a bleed in the right occipital cortex. And he had left hemianopsia. His only drug was aspirin. So uh, that, that's, a, that's a problem. And I would feel completely comfortable giving this guy a, a, a pool of platelets. I'm feeling I probably did something of some use. So I think it's fine with aspirin. Plavix, I think two is reasonable, but you're not going to get the same bang for your buck. And certainly, I agree totally, there's no good evidence for it. We do have a bit of a practice problem with tons of physicians ordering double-dose platelets. And in a study from the UK, uh, something like 10% of platelet orders were for double-dose platelets. There's really no indication for giving two pools at a time unless you have a platelet count much below 50 and the patient's massively bleeding, say post-obstetrical uh, hemorrhage, a gunshot wound with massive hemorrhage, or in this situation with Plavix. Although it's become this routine practice of a double-dose platelets, there's really no evidence for that. It's usually a single-dose pool. Before we leave the patient with the intracranial bleed from aspirin, is there anything else that you might reach for in any patient with an antiplatelet agent on board who's bleeding in their head? So one of the common things that we employ is adding transexamic acid to our armamentarium to manage this patient. And we would give the classic one gram and then one gram over eight hours or gram every eight hours for 24 hours to try and stabilize the bleed, not based on any evidence. But given that drug is very uh, cheap 
and there's no evidence that it increases your risk of thromboembolic complications. We don't believe it could cause any harm. Large trials are being done in a randomized fashion for patients with traumatic brain injury, um, so we're going to get a lot more evidence for the efficacy of these drugs with intracranial bleeding, but at this point in time, we don't believe it's harmful, and it's not very expensive. So transexamic acid is just one more thing that you can add to your management along with your platelet transfusions, and we would probably employ that in advance of trying DDAVP. So that segues perfectly into a general discussion about tranexamic acid, or cyclocapron is the, the trade name in Canada. Let's talk a little bit about some other indications for tranexamic acid and when you might use it in other situations. So I'll throw out a case there. A 38-year-old woman comes in with increasingly heavy vaginal bleeding for four days, which coincides with her regular menstrual periods. She complains of occasional dizziness and fatigue. She has no significant gynecologic history, and a recent pelvic ultrasound and pap smear were normal. Her beta-HCG comes back negative, and her hemoglobin is 95. Dr. Himmel, if you were to give this patient one medication, what would it be and why? If I had to use one medication, one medication only, and there's many options here. In fact, this is such a big topic. The New Control Medicine just published a whole review on how to manage manorrhagia. It would be tranexamic acid or cyclocapron. And the reason is this. If the patient is 40 or 45 or 50, they may have a carcinoma of endometrium. If the person is younger, birth control pill is an option. But transamic acid is extremely effective in controlling the bleeding from menorrhagia. It works remarkably quickly. If you choose to do an endometrial aspirate at some point, or the gynecologist does at some point, it's not going to affect the histopathology of the endometrial tissue and so forth. So giving such a person one gram of tranexamic acid three times a day, and that's a pretty solid dose, will probably get the menorrhage under control, I would think, within 12 hours or so. Now, of course, you've got to give it for four or five days. They will need follow-up. This is not a drug to be used continuously week in and week out. This is the drug to get the bleeding under control fairly rapidly, fairly successfully, fairly safety, safely, and then you have to go ahead and do a proper workup or refer them to a proper investigation after that. That being said, I do want to address the oral tranexamic acid for oral and nasal bleeding. And this is an unbelievably effective drug. I've used it on multiple occasions and highly underutilized. Many a person on warfarin, many a person on aspirin, many a person on plavix, or many a person on warfarin and aspirin and plavix will come into the emergency department with big time epistaxis or big time gum bleeding. And it can be a real ugly mess. So you don't have to give them octoplex. You don't have to give them vitamin K. You don't have to give them platelets. In fact, I'd argue any of those things is insane, but you've got to control the bleeding. So we all know about trying nasal packing. We all know about using gauze, soaked in a little bit of epinephrine, applying direct pressure. But it's been known for at least 25 years that a 5% solution of cratosamic acid swished in the mouth for a few minutes and then spat out and repeated over five or 10 minutes will stop oral bleeding secondary to recent dental surgery or secondary to warfarin with remarkable effectiveness. The article in this was published probably about 1980 in the Journal of Medicine. It was written by an oral surgeon and internist, and it basically said the following. If someone's having oral bleeding after you pull a tooth, you have 5% tranexamic acid. Now, tranexamic acid does not dissolve very well in tap water. So what you do is you get 10 pills of tranexamic acid, use 11 if you want, that's about 5 grams, you beat the hell out of it, you put in 110 cc's of tap water, and you shake it. 
And you say, here, take this and swish around a tablespoon or a tablespoon or two for two minutes and repeat this about every five or six minutes. It is remarkably effective. I've used it all the time. If that doesn't work, I take a piece of gauze and I soak it in the transamic acid solution, squish out the excess uh, fluid and press it directly against the gum that's bleeding. Unbelievably effective. If a traditional Vaseline pack doesn't work or too young to use that, then try a nasal tampon, that doesn't work. You have another option. Take the nasal tampon or take some surge cell and dip it in your transamic acid. Put that into your nose if the person who has INR4 and is bleeding or who's on aspirin plavix isn't bleeding. It's remarkably effective in stopping the bleeding. It's a great trick to have. It's extraordinarily effective. I use it all the time. And it's well described. It's been around 25 years. I uh, gave a lecture on this at East General. I spoke to a cardiologist who came up to me and said, two weeks earlier, he had a patient who had oral surgery and he had stopped their warfarin three days before the oral surgery. Well, the oral surgery went great. This is about five years ago. The oral surgery went great and the patient had a massive stroke. I can tell you after speaking to uh, this fellow, all the cardiologists there are now using cranosamic acid on patients who are on warfarin who are having oral surgery. The pharmacist mixes it up in the way I've described. The effectiveness is dramatic. The patients don't get strokes from tranexamic acid. It's a great drug to use for oral bleeding. Okay, so we talked about tranexamic acid for head bleeds. We talked about it for oral bleeding, epistaxis. I understand there's some literature that supports it for the use of subarachnoid hemorrhages. This seems like this highly underutilized drug. Dr. Callum, why, why have we not been using tranexamic acid more? So uh, one of the things I think that's driving this is this is a generic drug. Nobody's uh, going to make any money off of transexamic acid. So there's no pharmaceutical company, you know, driving us to use this. It has not been uh, readily available in the United States. So there's not a lot of literature coming out on of it. When you read a review article on managing bleeding, it's not one of the common drugs that they use. They do use Amicar, um, which is another antifibrinolytic, but they don't use cyclocapron. The other thing that uh, always makes me wonder is it has a very scary name, you know, you know, transexamic is acid. So I think uh, people are very nervous about that name, and they're worried if it's a proclauding drug that their patients are going to have thromboembolic complications, and so they're very nervous about using that. So if you look at the clinical studies, we have meta-analyses done of the use of transexamic acid before cardiac surgery, showing no increased risk of thromboembolic complications. We have a meta-analysis in non-cardiac surgery, showing no increased risk of thromboembolic complications. We have the CRASH-2 study, which was over 20,000 trauma patients. And if anything, there was a trend towards a reduction in thromboembolic uh, complications in the patients that receive transexamic acid. We have a trial that's ongoing called the WOMAN trial, which is a postpartum hemorrhage use of transexamic acid, and that will be 15,000 patients. I think they've enrolled over 8,000 so far. So we're going to have another very large trial that hopefully will show exactly the same thing, that the DVT-PE risk is not higher. And so I really think every clinician should feel completely comfortable about giving transexamic acid to most patients that are bleeding. If I may add, the other use for tranexamic acid would be with cancer patients having oozy lines because their platelet count is too low. Instead of reaching for perhaps an unnecessary platelet transfusion, gauze impregnated with tranexamic acid solution works wonders on oozy lines as well.
So that about wraps it up for this month's episode. Next month, we're going to be talking about ENT emergencies with Dr. Lior Sommer and Dr. Maria Vankovic. We're going to cover angioedema, malignant otitis externa, sudden sensorineural hearing loss, epiglottitis, and some more common things like pharyngitis and epistaxis. We'll also give you some tips and tricks on removing foreign bodies from ears and noses and all kinds of other great stuff. Before we go, just an update on CME credits. For those of you who are CCFP or CCFPEM, they have recently changed the requirements for what CME credits you need. And it turns out that you can fulfill an entire half of your five-year cycle requirements just by listening to EM cases. So the way it works, that in every five-year cycle, you must complete and report at least 250 main pro credits, of which half of them need to be either M1 or main pro C credits. However, the other half, that's 125 credits, can be M2 or M1 or MC credits. So EMC, you can claim M2 credits. If you listen to all the episodes, that'll be at least 125 credits in a five-year cycle. Each hour of listening is worth one credit. And so that each year, if you listen to all the episodes, you can claim at least 25 credits per year. If you have any other questions about CME credits, please email Anton at emergencymedicinecases.com. So until next time, take it easy.